Good morning, Central. Um, you may have noticed around in your bulletin, uh, on the screen or on the website, you know, all, the, all, these, all these avenues that we just hit you with, <laughs> um, that we incur- we've been encouraging people to uh, take up a challenge of reading the whole Bible this year. And there's this particular Bible reading plan we've, we've chosen to, uh, to make use of, and it's called the McShane Bible Reading Plan. Well, this morning I want to tell you a little bit about this man, Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher, Scottish pastor in the 19th century. Um, interesting, really interesting man. In, uh, he came to Christ in 1831 after the death of his brother, um, really impacted him. Um, and his in, in and through that, his heart was actually stirred to follow Jesus, and he went to seminary that same year. He became an assistant pastor at 22 years old. And from the outset of his ministry, he withdrew himself in total dependence upon the Lord. He wrote this, I see a man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake. Until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. He said that at 22. I mean, some, some people who are 22, uh, their greatest accomplishment this year was finishing the Call of Duty game, you know? Robert Murray McShane is writing at 22 that, you know, a pastor is only effective when he comes to the end of himself and it's all for Christ's glory that he serves. On August 14th in 1836, McShane was asked to candidate at a church extension in the growing city of Dundee. It would not be an easy place for ministry. There was a great deal of poverty and vice. And the minister would have over 4,000 souls in his parish. He said this, a city given to idolatry and hardness of heart was his impression on Dundee. And he became their pastor at the age of 23 and would serve there for seven years until his death at the age of 30. He had a sincere burden for souls, writing to a friend, I feel there are two things it is impossible to desire with sufficient ardor, personal holiness and the honor of Christ and the salvation of souls. There are two things, he said, that you cannot desire enough, personal holiness and leading people to Christ. When he preached, it was out of a full heart of love for his people when a friend and fellow minister told him that the text the previous Sunday had been, the wicked shall be turned into hell. McShane asked, were you able to preach it with tenderness? And the emphasis of his ministry was likeness to Jesus, saying it is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A stranger once wrote to him to say, I heard you preach last Sabbath evening, and it pleased God to bless that sermon to my soul. It was not so much what you said as your manner of speaking that struck me. I saw in you a beauty and holiness that I never saw before. Shane preached to gain entire likeness to Christ. I ought to get a high esteem of the happiness of it. I am persuaded that God's happiness is inseparably linked in with his holiness. May our happiness be in his holiness and in a growing likeness to Jesus Christ. 
the emphasis of his ministry was likeness to Jesus. Well, this likeness to Christ, this pursuit of holiness, this happiness in God comes from encountering and following Jesus Christ. This week and next week in our series on the Gospel of John, uh, entitled these sermons, Following Jesus Part 1 and Following Jesus Part 2, because we see in, in the end of, of, of John Chapter 1, these first disciples coming and following Jesus. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to John Chapter 1, and we're going to read together uh, this morning, verses 35 to 42, and next week we'll p- pick up again on Following Jesus Part 2 and verses 43 to 51. Let me read you the text, and then we'll, we'll get into it for this morning. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35. Here's what it says. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked, to Jesus. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. And one of the two who had heard Jesus, or heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Um, It's oftentimes sort of a joke at church that, you know, in in Sunday school as the kids go off that, you know, the answer to every question in in children's ministry is Jesus, right? Just say Jesus, and it's going to be the right answer. Well, I've made it real easy on you this morning because the answer in every blank truly is Jesus this morning. So, if you're a blank filler-outer, here we go. Point number one this morning is we need Jesus. Point number two this morning is it's all about Jesus. And thirdly, and we see it from the text, we are changed by Jesus. Nailed it. I may make it a little more interesting next week on you, at least for those fill-in-the-blanks, but there you go. Nice and simple. I want us to, to, to catch up just a little bit. We're going to look at something we looked at a lot last week, which is this phrase, Behold the Lamb of God. Last week, because it's earlier in the text, in verse 29, we see John the Baptist declare as he sees Jesus coming toward him that this man is not simply a man, but he is the Lamb of God. And we described what that meant last week. Um, To put it really, really plainly, it's the fact that Jesus is this atoning sacrifice for sin, that his blood was shed, and it actually um, cleanses those who believe in him. So he sacrificed his life for us, as we see lambs doing in the Old Testament multiple times, such as Abraham and Isaac, and rather than Abraham sacrificing his own son Isaac, a lamb is provided, and and the people Israel, God's people in Egypt, while they're captive, all the eldest sons were going to be killed unless they were to kill a unblemished one-year-old male lamb and spread some of the blood on their doorposts. Their sons would be spared because the lamb would be the sacrifice instead of them. The lamb would um, 
bloodshed would keep them from their blood needing to be shed. And so we see that this lamb of God is significant. And Jesus is this special lamb because he is the once for all sacrifice that will and does take away the sins of the world as John declared previously. Well, now we're in this next scene. It says the next day and again... John the Baptist is standing there and he sees Jesus and he's got a couple of his own. John the Baptist had disciples at this point, people following him as John was pointing to a coming one, a Messiah that would come. The disciples are aware of that and they see Jesus walking along and John points to him and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And what happens? His own two disciples just pick up and leave. They just walk off. They see John pointing out Jesus, they're disciples of John. But they hear who John says Jesus is. He's this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so his own disciples just get up and start following Jesus. We rediscover what we've already been learning about John the Baptist. And his great attribute is pointing away from himself and pointing to Jesus. And that's what he does again here. So much so that when he points Jesus out to his disciples, they walk off and start following Jesus. And you just get the impression from who John the Baptist is that he's okay with that. Because he was this voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord and he's recognizing that Jesus is that one. And so he's good with that because that was his mission to point to Jesus, to point to the coming one and to prepare people's hearts for Jesus and their need of Jesus. And so that's what happens and these disciples of his begin to follow Jesus. Well, that's where we pick it up here now in verses 37 through to 39. The two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? Or as another translation puts it, What do you want? So John has a couple of disciples. He points out who Jesus is. The couple of disciples begin to follow Jesus. And Jesus turns around, sees them following, and says, What do you want? In the one sense, he's asking, What's on your minds? And in another sense, Jesus is confronting those beginning to follow Jesus with the question, what are you seeking and what do you want? I think that's a really critical primary question to following Jesus. When we, when we begin to discover some things of Jesus, a natural early question in that discovery period of following Jesus is, well, what do you want? Like, what is it that you want from Jesus? Why are you hanging around? What is it that you want to receive from Jesus? What do you want in this relationship? If you begin to follow Jesus, a natural question is, what, what are you seeking? And maybe more often than, than we'd like to admit, we're, we're, we're seeking things from Jesus that actually aren't Jesus. We want a good environment for our kids, and so we come to church because we want our kids to go to Sunday school because we, that might be a positive thing. And that's a good thing. A good environment for your family is a good thing. But is that ultimately if, what you're after? Or are you after the one from whom every good thing originates? Are you after a good thing, Sunday school classes for your kids? Or are you, are you after the one who is and brings every good thing? Maybe you're here this morning because you're looking for some calm from the storm. Life is hectic, life is hard, life is challenging. You, you, you want a little bit of calm because, yeah, there's a storm brewing in your life. And so you've come. And that's a good thing. And you're in a good place for that. But is that ultimately what you're after? A calm from the storm? Or are you after the one who calms the storms? 
Maybe we hang around. Maybe we're following Jesus because we're looking for gifts from God. We're looking for the things that we believe God can bring us. Like we're looking for a promotion. And so, you know, if I come to church and if I maybe pray, like maybe these good things will happen for me. Is it the good gifts that come from God, what we're after, or the God who gives good gifts? Right? Are we looking for the peace of God? We're looking for some peace and some tranquility and for life to go well. Are we looking for the peace of God? Or is it the God of peace that we're after? Maybe there's physical ailment in your life. Maybe there are, are relational conflicts in your life and you're looking for healing, the healing from God, the healing, the kind of things that you're, 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 you're sure God can bring in your life, and so you're looking for the healing of God in your life. That's a good thing. But not quite good enough, because I think it's the God who heals that we must truly be after. See, what you and I need is Jesus more than anything. And so I think it's important for many of us to admit that as we begin to follow Jesus, or as we've been following Jesus for a long time, it's important for us to see Jesus asking this question, turning to us and saying, what are you after? What is it that you're seeking? What do you you really want from me? And if it's anything less than Jesus himself, it's falling so short. Augustine, in his phenomenal book, Confessions, from the third century, he wrote, my sin was this that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, not in Jesus, but in myself and his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. He goes on to write this famous line, You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. My great sin was this, he said. I was looking for pleasure in fleeting things. I was looking for pleasure in fleeting things, lesser things, when my heart can only truly rest when it finds rest in Jesus himself. More than any other thing, what you and I need is Jesus. And it's amazing because many of us can hear this for a long, long time, but walk out of these doors and pursue lesser things with more gusto than anything. And then Jesus. If you are restless and looking for that thing that will satisfy, let me save you a lot of time, let me save you a lot of money, let me save you a lot of pain, you won't find that rest that your restless heart is searching for until it rests in Jesus himself. For what we need is Jesus. What we truly need is Jesus himself, that relationship with him, that closeness with him, that satisfaction that comes from truly being after Jesus Christ himself, that relationship that comes with him. He made you for himself. And you will find what you were created for when you rest in and give your life to the Creator. So Jesus asked this question, what do you want? And the disciples ask a question back. Their response is, Rabbi, which means, teacher, where are you staying? When Jesus asks, what do you want? I'm sure they're going, ah, I don't, I, I don't have a quick answer because there is no quick answer. I want to hang around with you. I want to be with you. I want to, I want to hang out. I want this to continue. And so their question is a leading question of, 
can we hang out? Right? Where are you staying? I want to go there too. Where are you headed? We want to walk with you for a while. Their question is one of wanting to know Jesus. They've got a lot of questions for him. They've got a lot of hanging out with Jesus they want to do. And I love Jesus' response. Because when we actually genuinely pursue him and want to hang around with Jesus, look at what Jesus' response is. Come and see. Take the journey with me. Let's walk along this path together. I'll show you where I reside. I'll show you where I'm staying. I'll show you where I am. You can come. You can hang. We can talk. I can minister to you. You can bring your questions. You can bring your concerns. You can bring the hardships of your life. Walk with me. Come and see. Because they're they're revealing that they're, they're after Jesus. They're intrigued by Jesus. And Jesus invites them to follow. We need Jesus. And when we recognize that and come before Jesus, he invites us to come along with him. The verses go on, verse 40. It says, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Here's the first thing uh, that we see that, uh, that jumps out. Witnessing to your family, I think, is the hardest thing of all. James Montgomery Boyce said, unlike the man on the seat next to you, your brother knows you. That can be problematic. (laughs) He knows whether the thing you are professing has affected you personally. He knows whether you take a turn drying the dishes at home or whether you try to wiggle out of the responsibility. He knows whether you put thought into caring for other members of the family. He knows whether or not you are touchy and anxious, above all, to defend your own interests. In short, he knows whether the faith you profess is real or ineffectual. He knows whether Christ occupies the highest point in your life or whether you do. Andrew was one who placed himself second in order that he might bring others to Jesus. One of the things we're doing at our, our prayer gathering tonight is we have, we have a couple, there's a couple elements of our, our prayer time tonight. One of them is a prayer, uh, spending time praying for our own, each of our own neighbors and people in our lives that don't know Jesus, people we want to just love and bless and be sacrificial to this year and point to Jesus this year. Those people God has put in our lives that don't know Jesus. And as a church family, we care about your families. As people in your lives are heavy on your hearts, we want to be a part of praying with you for those. That's part of what tonight is about. That's the first thing that jumps out about Andrew. He meets Jesus, and then he wants his bro to know Jesus. He encounters Jesus, and the first thing he thinks is, Simon's got to know about Jesus. And off he goes to get his brother. Here's the second thing that jumps out about that verse about Andrew. Andrew is mentioned by name 12 times in the New Testament. If I were to ask you, does anybody know much about Andrew in the Bible? Andrew is mentioned 12 times by name in the New Testament. 
In 10 of those, he's mentioned with Peter, and he's usually mentioned as Peter's brother. That's Andrew. Peter is mentioned over 150 times and is a contributing writer of the New Testament. If I were to ask, anybody know much about Peter? A lot of hands would go up. Peter is this significant apostle. But, But do you see what happens here? Who comes across Jesus first? It's Andrew. And Andrew grabs Simon at the time. We'll see his name change happen here. And brings Simon. And and then Simon meets Jesus. But then we see that Simon, Peter, becomes this big deal. And we hear very little about Andrew. Really, from, from this point on, we hear his name mentioned 12 times in the whole New Testament. This brings us to our second point that is all about Jesus. Andrew had a more impressive resume at that time to begin with. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. He brought more theological training and ministry experience to the table. He was actually the disciple of a a teacher, of of a prophet, really the last of the Old Testament prophets is John the Baptist. He's a big deal. Crowds are going out into the wilderness to encounter John the Baptist. Andrew is a disciple of this great prophet. Simon isn't. He had a more impressive resume. He brought more theological training to the table. He was one of Jesus' first disciples. And it was him who brought Peter to Jesus. And yet, it's clear from Peter's very first encounter with Jesus that the plans Jesus had for him were different than the plans he had for Andrew. That's the deepest desire of true disciples, though, as I look at Andrew. Following Jesus isn't about our prominence. It's all about the prominence of Jesus. John the Baptist goes on in John chapter 3 to say, he must increase about Jesus. Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Or another translation says, Jesus must become greater, I must become less. It's like Robert Murray McShane said, and I said it at the beginning, we can't be faithful ministers of the gospel until we share Christ for Christ's sake, until we give up striving to attract people to ourselves and seek only to attract them to Christ. There is this story in Matthew chapter 25 about talents. It's a a monetary amount. But I think it has something to do with talents in the area of gifts as well. And, and, And the master, this wealthy master, really Jesus to his people, decides to give one five talents, one two talents, and one one talent. And off he goes and he entrusts these uh, servants of his with five, two, and one. And the master gives as he deems fit and off he goes. And, and the, whole, the whole story is what do they do with what they've been given? And the five turns into ten and the two turns into four and the one is buried in the ground and is still one. And find out that was a wicked servant. So as we think about Matthew chapter 25, we see that Peter's a five. Andrew's a two. I think Isaiah chapter 55 um, speaks into this as it says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts, God declares. We don't, don't understand particularly why one's given five talents, and one's given two talents, and one's given one, and the one that's given one doesn't handle that one even very well. Reasons we're not privy to. 1 Corinthians 12:11 says of spiritual gifts all these are empowered 
by one and the same Spirit who appoints to each one individually as He wills. That's the work of the Spirit, to gift as He wills. Different individuals, though every believer gets gifts, certainly the Spirit divvies them out as He wills. But what I love about Matthew chapter 25 as well is this, this, this one servant who's given five talents and this one servant who's given two talents, they both are entrusted with these and they're both faithful with what they're given. And the master comes back and actually gives them the exact same blessing, says the exact same thing to both, both of them. They get the same response from the master, which is, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Same response for the five and the two. But they were both entrusted with particular things and they were both faithful with particular things and so they both get the same blessing from their master. Both men were faithful. Peter was faithful to Jesus in a more spotlight role of serving Jesus. And Andrew was faithful in a more shadow servant kind of way. That's many of you I'd say many of us, but it's clearly not me because I'm standing on a stage with a microphone and I'm saying stuff. It's quite public. But I'm so encouraged by by the many of you that I I see this in. And and it's really, really subtle. And I think I have to look closely because it's the shadow servant kind of stuff, right? I'd love to give you example after example, but I think a lot of these are the Andrew type of things that are really behind the scenes. Those who pray diligently without anybody knowing. I have been so encouraged by people who have quietly walked up to me and taken me by the arm and said, I pray for you every day. It's like a whisper. It's like they don't want anybody else to know. It's a private thing that they do. I pray for all the pastors. I pray for the whole lead team. I I love to pray. It's a shadow servant kind of a ministry. Those who quietly go about helping people in need, right? Just the the quiet ones. See a need in front of their eyes. Don't make a show of it. Just quietly, I'm going to meet this need. Why does anybody need to know? Don't need a tax receipt for this. I'm just going to help this person, right? Those who share Jesus kindly, respectfully, and compellingly with those around you. Don't make a show of it. Don't make people feel foolish. Don't yell it. Just subtly love people. Value people. Help them observe Jesus in you. And share the gospel in a way that just ties into how you live. See, if it's for notoriety, it's not for Jesus, it's for you. If it's for notoriety, it's not for Jesus, it's for me. But to be faithful to what the Lord puts before you, regardless of recognition, is to be like Andrew. Serving in the shadows of someone far more recognized takes humility. And no less courage, no less obedience, no less faithfulness. Probably more, right? And it's no less important. Andrew brings his brother to Jesus. Andrew bringing his brother to Jesus was, as one theologian put it, listen to this, 
perhaps it is as great a service to the church as ever any man did. Andrew's bringing Peter to Jesus is perhaps as great an act in the church that anyone has ever done. And then you'll continue to read about this guy, Andrew, in the scriptures. And what's the tag that comes after it? The brother of Peter. It's sort of like a... I'll throw Emily under the bus here. It's like, it's Pastor Matt and Pastor Matt's wife. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm, it's Emily, right? It's Emily. It's Emily Schantz. Her own individual, wonderful... Not just... the sh- Right, but there is a little bit of a shadow person... At this, in this element, because I'm up here. When, when, you, when we have you in our living room, I become the shadow person, trust me. <laughs> right? but, um, but there's just something about that. Right? Andrew kind of gets that. He gets the, that's Peter's brother. And yet, what he did by bringing Peter to Jesus is perhaps as good a thing as any has ever happened in the, in the life of the church. And yet, he seems to be like his former teacher, John the Baptist, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. I just I roll with this. I've 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 been given a certain amount of talents, and I choose to be faithful with them. God has put certain things in front of me, and I'm going to serve faithfully as I go with what He's put before me. I love that. Every time we see Andrew in the Gospel of John, by the way, he's bringing someone to Jesus. We see Andrew three times, his name mentioned in John's Gospel. Each of those times, Andrew's bringing somebody to Jesus. And yet when you think about the disciples, he's not in the inner three. He's not one of the big, big church leaders. He's a guy in the shadows, but every time you catch a glimpse, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Extra biblical material tells us that Andrew continued to preach the gospel, bringing people to Jesus and continued to plant churches until he was martyred by crucifixion in in the 80s, 60s. Those were the real 60s, by the way. I know some people talk about the 60s. Andrew lived in the 60s, man. The actual 60s, AD 60. And he was crucified. See, he, he continued to go about being faithful to what God put before him. And it was huge things. It was significant things. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and see what the body is meant to do. And we're all given different gifts and they all have different functions, but we are to be faithful with those and they all matter and they're all significant because if we all had the same gift, we'd all be the same and we'd be relatively useless. It would be a big mess. We're meant to flourish in gifts that differ and some of them are more in the shadows, but there are no less significant and important. And can I tell you, when they are in the shadows, it's, it's, it, I think it's easier to see that that's a really faithful person of Jesus. Because where's the notoriety in it? The things you do in secret, the things you do alone that are between you and Jesus, those are significant. Will you give up attracting people to yourself and attract people to Jesus? The cry of every true disciple is to see that following Jesus isn't about our prominence at all. It's about Jesus' prominence. It's all about Jesus. And when we get that, we can serve in the shadows with faithfulness because our satisfaction is found in Jesus himself. It goes on in verse 42. Here's the final verse of this little passage. He, that's Andrew, brought him, that's Simon, to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. 
Just what this book need by the, needed, by the way, is this is John's gospel. We hear about John the Baptist, and now here's Simon and Andrew, and their dad's name is John. It's crazy. We bring people to Jesus, but Jesus has to speak in that person's life. Do you notice it? Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And then Jesus looks at him, it says, and begins to speak. That, that's our role. Our role is the bringing to Jesus. We can point people to Jesus, but they have to have an encounter with Jesus for themselves. We can't force that. But we can draw people to Jesus. We can point people to Jesus. We can love people towards Jesus. Jesus graciously finds us then where we're at, and by his grace, he doesn't leave us there. That that brings us to our third point. We are changed by Jesus. This is what Jesus says to him. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, rock. The significance of a name change was that it stood for the whole person. It summed up the entire personality. Simon is Jesus' man from this time on. He's also a different man. This change begins with intervention. People are brought to Jesus. We encounter Jesus, and Jesus intervenes in our lives. Regarding um, um, the work of Thomas Cranmer, Ashley Knoll powerfully summarized humanity's problem. She said, according to, the Thomas Cran- uh, to Thomas Cramner's anthropology, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. This is what he says. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The mind doesn't direct the will. The mind is actually captive to what the will wants, and the will itself, in turn, is captive to what the heart wants. Ultimately, we're heart-driven People. The trouble with human nature is that we are born with a heart that loves ourselves over and above everything else in this world, including God. In short, we are born slaves to the lust for self-gratification. That's why, if left to ourselves, we will always love those things that make us feel good about ourselves. Left to our own devices, we will always love those things which make us feel good about ourselves over and above everything else, even as we depart more and more from God and his ways. Therefore, God must intervene in our lives in order to bring salvation. Working through scripture, the Holy Spirit brings a conviction of sin in a believer's heart, and then he births a living faith by which the believer lays hold of the extrinsic righteousness of Christ. All that to say... Our hearts, left to our own devices, will simply pursue our own pleasure. That's why I said at the beginning, we need Jesus, because we we seek after fleeting things so well. Our hearts just naturally do that. We're just after lesser things. We see what's in front of us, and we want it, and so we go after it with everything in us. Our heart wants this thing that our eyes are fixated on, and after it we go. Our hearts naturally depart more and more from God and his ways and towards fleeting things that we love for ourselves. And therefore, he says, God must intervene. He has to intervene in our lives because that's where our hearts go, left to our own devices. So he intervenes and lays hold of our hearts and we lay hold of the extrinsic righteousness of Christ. He reveals our sin and then he births a living faith within us. That's his intervention in our lives. And we see that here. And the reason I say all that is because Andrew brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him 
and names him something new. See, when we truly encounter Jesus, we are changed. When we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we are in that moment changed. We are changed. When we come to saving faith in Jesus, we are changed. When God sees a Christian, he sees the spotless record of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 said it says, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. You are new. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again. It's this term of being born again is simply you are new. When you encounter Christ, you are a new creation. You are born again. Ephesians 2 says God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's this work of regeneration, which is new birth. The change which the Holy Spirit affects in us. God's awakening of a person spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's regeneration. And that's encounter with Christ. So when we, that's the beginning of faith. When we truly encounter Jesus and Jesus speaks into our lives, we are changed. And like Peter, we can truly encounter Jesus. And like Peter, we can truly be changed. Jesus intervenes in our lives and brings us to salvation and we are made new. The old has passed away and the new has come. What I love about Peter is this. In John chapter 1, we see Jesus have his first interaction. Peter have his first interaction with Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus looks at him and renames him. This is who you are. This is who you are. And yet, Peter's going to go on what? To say the kinds of things that makes Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, as he looks at Peter. He's the kind of guy, although Jesus has given that sermon on the mountain and talks about about peace and being peacemakers, that when some soldiers approach Jesus, Peter decides to take out a sword and cut off the ear of the soldier. And yet Jesus came to bring peace. And Peter's been following Jesus. Jesus for three years, and yet his reaction is, I'm going to cut off an ear here. And Jesus, in his final hours, when he's on trial, Peter denies him three times. All of this happens after Peter's name has been changed, and Jesus says, this is who you are. You're no longer Simon, you are Peter. That's who you are. And yet he goes on to make a mess, and he goes on to do really stupid things. Does anybody take solace in that? Because I remember coming to Christ a long, long time ago. And, 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 and ever since, I, 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 I've done a lot of stupid things. Like, lots of stupid things. And I think, am I, am I Christian? Am I a good Christian? Like, what's going on? Like, why isn't more happening in me? Like, why do I feel rel- relatively useless to the church? Why do I feel relatively useless to the kingdom? I thought I was a good Christian, and I'm doing stupid stuff. <laughs> Don't confuse this. Jesus has, if you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right, as as your rescuer and your master and the one you're after, if you believe that in your heart and you've made that commitment to him, Jesus has intervened in your life. He's warmed your heart in the first place because your heart pursues fleeting things until it encounters Christ. That's his grace to you that you find Jesus glorious, beautiful, attractive. You're drawn to him. That you even feel that way is him drawing to you. Him, you to him. He's intervened in your life. Be encouraged by that. He has said, you are born again. That has happened. And then it continues. The life transformation piece. See, we see Peter have this moment where he is changed. He's no longer Simon. He is Peter. 
And yet he's going to go do a bunch of stupid stuff. And yet he's also going to do the kind of stuff that happens in Acts chapter 2 where he preaches and 3,000 people come to Christ. He also does the kind of thing where when he's martyred, he says, don't crucify me like Jesus. I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So crucify me upside down instead. Like this is a disciple. This is someone who follows Jesus. I'm not worthy to die in the same way Christ Jesus died. So flip me around. Same guy. When he encountered Jesus and Jesus looked into his eyes and declared that he was changed, Peter was changed. And yet there was this, there's this whole trajectory of the rest of your life that you're being sanctified, being made holy here on earth as sinners saved by grace, sinners yet we are. We're spotless in the eyes of God because he sees Christ's record that we get when we receive salvation. And yet the rest of life is celebrating that and living in light of that. Right? It's this grace-driven effort that we long to be like Christ because of what he has done for us. It, it's finished and it's accomplished and it took place. Donald Miller is this phenomenal writer and he wrote a book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. Let me talk to you for a moment about life transformation because that's what begins here in the life of Peter. Donald Miller wrote, If the point of life is the same as the point of a story, the point of life is character transformation. If I got any comfort, he said, as I set out on my first story, it was that in nearly every story, the protagonist is transformed. He's a jerk at the beginning and nice at the end, or a coward at the beginning and brave at the end. If the character doesn't change, the story hasn't happened yet. And if the story, if story is derived from real life, if story is just condensed version of life, then life itself may be dis- designed to change us so that we evolve from one kind of person to another. That's what Donald Miller says about story. Any good story has transformation of the soul. Transformation of the protagonist. I want to tell you this. I want to close with this this morning. The way that God has designed it for you and for me is to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. To recognize our hearts naturally go elsewhere. Our our hearts naturally pursue lesser things than Jesus. But when we encounter Jesus, the rest of life is the great story. We have come to know Christ. He changes everything. And the rest of life is character transformation. So intervention takes place, and then the rest of life is life transformation. So let me encourage you. You may still screw up. Hey, Peter's in the same boat, but you have been changed when you accept Jesus Christ. And the rest is that life transformation. See, Jesus finds us where we're at, but doesn't leave us there. He takes us deeper. He draws us in. He transforms our lives. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to pick up on this more Uh, Next week, we're going to do following Jesus part two, but there's following Jesus part one. How about I pray and we're going to respond with worship to this one who both intervenes and transforms our lives. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much that um, there's just so much in this text as I've I've studied it this week that I've, it, it stopped me in my tracks. 
I see myself in um, I see myself in those disciples following Jesus, and he t- turns around and says, "What do you want? What is it that you're after?" We're recognizing so much of me. It's 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 the things you can give me rather than you. I think of the story of the prodigal son, and there's just this son who's not after his dad. He's after the things his dad can give him. And so, Lord, I confess that sin of spending so much time pursuing the gifts I think you can give me and settling for that rather than finding my soul's satisfaction in the giver of those gifts. So I ask that question to us again, Lord. I pray you'd impress it on our hearts. What is it that we're after when it comes to your son, Jesus? May it be him and him alone more than any other thing. God, in each of us, there is a longing to be famous. There's a longing to be a star. It starts when we're little. I recognize it in myself. I look back in my years wanting to be a hockey player, wanting to be a rock star. You want to be these things that are big. And then we look at Andrew, this shadow servant who truly encountered you and found his joy and satisfaction in simply being faithful with the talents you had given him and entrusted him with. May we be like that, Jesus, and find our great reward in 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 being in communion with you and being faithful to what you put us to. And finally, Lord, thank you that you find us, you look at us, you change us, and then you give us the rest of our lives to walk with you and become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. I thank you for all these things. I thank you that each one of us have the opportunity to be people who follow Jesus. Every step we've mapped out this morning is every step that you enable us to take. And I praise you for that, Jesus. Thank you for this church that I love. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather again tonight and lean in and pray for what you're after in our lives and in our church and lean into that and pray for that. Depend on you for that. That's what we long to be, Lord. Less of us and more of you. And now as we worship you in response, Lord, would you move in us and impress your word on our heart. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.